Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or sent to me by email, which is my preferred way of getting questions, by the way. Uh, if you send them to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to my show. Thanks for uh, inviting me into your home this week. Uh, I wanted to plug the podcast. I did a very uh, fun interview with Catherine Spolino, the author of The Bad Cadet. Uh, sort of a member of the Sea Org's lost generation is what I'm calling that. Uh, of Sea Org kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s in the Sea Org and were basically neglected and abused uh, in that environment before the Sea Org finally put the kibosh on having any kids and started doing the whole forced abortion thing. Um, I mean, that had happened earlier, but it really kind of became policy in the 1990s. So Catherine and I had an interesting talk about her upbringing in the Sea Org and as a cadet, uh, as a bad cadet, and uh, her book that she wrote about that and, uh, and her experiences. So I hope you will check that out, as well as my Friday show, uh, where we talked about something a little different, a little authoritarian, a little bit of creeping authoritarianism in the, in the United States via policing and artificial intelligence. And some things that we saw in the news. And I had a guest, John Poe, Poe on the go. So, uh, like I said, I hope you guys will check that show out. It might sound or come across as, you know, sort of very reactionary current events, even conspiratorial. And it's, of course, not. My channel is absolutely anti-conspiracy theory. But uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't things going on in the world that maybe we might want to have our attention on because creeping authoritarianism is absolutely a thing. And as much as I love the United States, that's what's going on here. So, all right. So that being said, um, let's go ahead and get to your questions. Jesse Davis. Hey, Chris, seeing that you're a subject matter expert on cult deprogramming, I wanted your opinion on this situational question. Assuming the Kim regime eventually falls in North Korea, what steps do you think would need to be taken to properly deprogram the population? How would the deprogramming of an entire population compare to that of someone leaving a cult who has the ability to reenter a society that never fell victim to the programming? I know this has already been done with the denazification of Germany, but I'd like your unique perspective on this present-day situation. All right, Jesse, thank you for asking me about this. Now, this is a complicated and incredibly multi-layered answer or demanded for this and I and I don't have the time or or knowledge actually to be able to give you a very realistic hardcore full breakdown on how we would go about this because um, a lot would depend on the context of how the Kim regime disappears. And when you look into the denazification of Germany, you find that there were two different approaches taken, both on West Germany side and East Germany side by the Western, you know, allied nations on West, on the democratic side, and the more socialist communist side and what Russia did with the East Germans. And um, and the, and neither one really worked in any in any way that it was imagined it would work uh, because of the, the 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 just multiple the multiple levels on which you need to operate in order to run a society. A lot of people sort of think about this in a very niche easy way like okay well i can take one person and sit them down and deprogram them now do a population and it's and the, and it's apples and oranges that the differences are huge and in fact i thought i might walk you all through some of these things that i was looking at to try to figure out well how would i go about this you know the people who had to denazify germany didn't really do a great job and and they didn't exactly have the full cooperation of the German people, not because the Germans were a bunch of Nazi dickheads, but only 10% of the German population were actually officially members of the Nazi party. But they definitely were a war-battered, you know, destroyed country that needed to build itself back up. And when you're dealing with 10% of the, of the population of a country like Germany, you're talking about a lot of people that you've got to process, go through, figure out how, how Nazi were they, how long were they involved. How do you even begin to collect that information in a, by the way, in a pre-internet environment where you had forms that people had to fill out? typewriters, pencils, pens, that was your method of finding out information from people. And they had hundreds of thousands of people they had to deal with. And this did not go smoothly and did not go well. 
um, eventually everything sort of kind of, you know, sorted out in one way or another, mostly due to the German population taking responsibility and ownership for the whole thing themselves because the Allies couldn't just hang around and own Germany and run it for decades. And uh, Truman himself said it was going to take 50 years to do the whole thing. And America wasn't going to occupy Germany for 50 years. That was very impractical. They barely stayed for a couple. Uh, Not to mention that you might remember I did a whole podcast on Operation Paperclip where some of those Nazis were not touched at all. They were just lifted and brought over. I think it was something on the order of 740 or 50 of them were uh, were brought over to the United States, and that is what constituted our uh, space engineering program and is the only reason that we developed rockets and went to the moon. And that we now have GPS and satellite uh, and everything else that we have in our modern world, that's due to the fact that we imported a bunch of Nazis to the United States. I, it's, I, I don't say that like you know, in any way, except it's kind of the truth. It's, it's what happened. And, uh, and that's all part of that whole denazification process. So it's a, like I said, there's a lot of layers to this. And what I'm going to, and what I, what I mean by that is let's take a look at some facts about North Korea, uh, that you might not be aware of. And I thought this might be an interesting opportunity to go into a few facts about North Korea. First off, education. The first thing I think about is education. Oh, well, we'll just get into the schools and we'll just sort everything out that way. Oh, really? Will we? Well, check this out. Uh, there are primary and secondary schools in North Korea, and they and they it's school attendance is mandatory. Uh, school secondary school goes up until the age of sixteen. Um, now, the literature read by North Korean students is obviously carefully censored. Most writers remain obscure; their biographical details are concealed. Secondary education is uh, equally accessible to men and women. Um, in the women were taught that emancipation came through labor, socialized child rearing, and helping to build a socialist North Korea through productive work. Women make up over eighty percent of elementary teachers and fifteen percent of college professors. Um, it's a fixed income, by the way, and uh, men look like they make more. The curriculum in North Korea, of course, is focused almost, you know, on the Kim, the Kim family. A uh, study for by the Korea Institute for Curriculum Evaluation finds students spend 684 hours learning about the current leader Kim Jong-un, his father Kim Jong-il, his grandfather Kim Il-sung, and his grandmother Kim Jong-suk. North Korea states its education system is for students to acquire the concept of revolution and endless loyalty toward the party and supreme leader. Okay, we kind of probably figured it was going to be something like that, and guess what? It's exactly like that. Uh, higher education is difficult. There are various different various levels of higher education. You have college and university, and you do have vocational schools. Uh, it can be very hard to get into some of those schools. You have to have amazing um, grades and usually higher government connections in order to even get into higher education. Now, here's where interesting things happen. Military service is required for North Korean men and women at the age of 17. Boys are going to serve for 10 years. Women are going to serve until they're 23. Mandatory. You're going in the military, and they start prepping for that earlier. Um, What we might think of as ROTC programs and that kind of thing. A lot of education in North Korea is propaganda meant to indoctrinate students into the system as early as kindergarten. Uh, when, for example, when children learn about time, they learn it is based on Kim Il-sung's birth year, 1912, known as Year One in North Korea. Every classroom in North Korea must have a picture of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Children learn about revolutionary history involving music, storybooks, novels, and artwork related to the Kims. A report published by the United Nations Commission of Inquiry states North Korea's education program has two goals, to instill the utmost loyalty and commitment toward the supreme leader and to instill hostility and deep hatred toward the United States, Japan, and South Korea. 
And that factor alone is going to make this a multi-generational activity because you've got nothing but decades, generations going back 100 years, over 100 years, that have been indoctrinating the entire population that not only is North Korea the be-all, end-all of existence, but very us versus them and how, and how the very uh, forces, the Western nations that could come in and, and perhaps help or do something about this are not going to be thought about by that population as allies or people they want to have anything to do with. And that's and, and if you come in, you know, and, and again, it depends an awful lot on the context of how the Kim family is taken out. If we say it's all an internal thing and the Western nations didn't come in and, and there wasn't a war or battle or something like that, and it was all internal, well, there's still some other factors at play here. But this is not a country that's just waiting to open its doors to Western nations. That is, that's not the situation there. This education is intense and it is fierce. Uh, literally, the education system violates international law by restricting freedom of thought and expression in its people. Uh, the UN in 2018 concluded that North Korea is committing, quote, systematic, widespread, and gross violations of human rights. Um, their findings cite torture, inhuman conditions of detention, rape, public executions, the death penalty for political and religious reasons, and political prison camps. Uh, and you don't just go in and open the doors and empty out all the camps and think you're doing anybody any favors. you got to reacclimate these people. And we're talking about thousands, probably tens of thousands, maybe more, in these camps and re-education systems. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about a lot of people. You don't just hand everybody a pamphlet and go, okay, you're free now. You know, this is going to take years and years just to address the things I've read so far in terms of completely revamping the educational system to not be what it has been for over 100 years. This is a massive undertaking. And then, of course, yeah, you have the re-education camps. Now, that is just educational factors. Military age for the Korea's peop Korean People's Army, 17 to 30, conscripted at age 18. There are 1,280,000 people, active personnel on duty in the Korean People's Army with 600,000 more in reserve. As of 2021, it is the second largest military organization in the world. North Korea's army. 29.9% uh, of the North Korean population actively serving in reserve or in a paramilitary capacity. So just to give a little bit of info on the scope of the military over there, it's everything in that country. And as I understand it, they uh, have everything from special forces all the way down to policing actions, construction, uh, agriculture. I mean, there's a lot. Military deals with a lot of stuff over there. And 15.8% um, of the state budget goes right to the military. The other thing about the North Korean economy to know about uh, in entering into this deprogramming question is that a great deal of North Korea's uh, income comes from selling missiles and military equipment to other countries and training terrorists, basically revolutionaries, for other countries. And they have done this uh, historically. Uh, they have assisted a vast number of revolutionary, insurgent, and terrorist groups in more than 62 countries. A uh, cumulative total of more than 5,000 foreign personnel have been trained in North Korea. And over 7,000 military advisors, primarily from bah, 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 have been dispatched to some 47 countries. So terrorism is big business in North Korea. It's a, it's a great deal to do with how they uh, manage their economy. Actually, it's part of that. So these are other factors you have to start thinking about because you go, well, are we going to just drop all that because now we're going to consider them a Western nation or are they going to continue with internal management to run their country as a sovereign nation? And if they're going to do that, this activity is probably going to continue because the other thing to know about North Korea is something about its economy. The um, heavy industrialization uh, following the um, division of the North and South Korea many, many years ago. Um, and they took on the sort of Soviet model of governance and central planning and ideology. 
and development. Uh, they emphasized heavy industry and investments, iron, steel, cement, and machine tool sectors. However, many experts believe that these policies, beginning in the aftermath of the Korean War, have been an obstacle to the country's economic development. Uh, they were short-term policies, and the shortcomings of them were, worsened North Korea's uh, chronic economic problems, and there's been you know, a lot of stagnation. It enters one of the worst periods of stagnation, almost collapsed in the 1990s. The disintegration of the Soviet Union, followed by a food crisis in the aftermath of a series of natural disasters, hailstorms uh, in 1994, flooding in 95-96, droughts in 97, pushed North Korea into an economic crisis. Uh, and they had an annual growth rate during, uh, from 1990 to 98 of minus 4%. Um, they started getting uh, humanitarian aid in the, in the mid-1990s. That continues till today. Um, finally, in the 2000s, they began, uh, expanded its tactics for recovering its economy, eased some restrictions, started bringing in some semi-private you know, markets, and launched a series of economic reforms. Uh, did a little shift in the price-fixing mechanism, changed distribution, decentralization of national planning, you know, started bringing in some more Western initiative kind of ideals into the country in a similar way to the that China did. And um, I don't know that they did it at the same time. But economic growth picked up for a few years, and this was an improvement. And uh, there was some growth in 2000, 2005. Um, okay, here we go. Agriculture, 22% of the country's GDP, industry is 47 and services 29%. The country still makes significant investments into its military, and some analysts claim that this expense may come at the cost of its economic development. North Korea spent approximately 24% of its GDP in 2016, about $4 billion, on defense spending. So North Korea, China, and the last business, the last bit here, China is North Korea's main trading partner. Let's remember what China is. China's the CCP, China's a communist country. And if there are the if they are North Korea's primary trading partner, then odds are ideologically they're going to have to meet eye to eye with China, which means even if you get rid of the Kim family, you're still going to have to maintain some kind of system of governance that China's going to be okay with, which means the oppression's probably going to continue. But let's say, let's say uh, for argument's sake that somehow all of these factors are somehow handled in such a way um, that you are able to freely change these systems. So you're going to have to change how their economy works. You're going to have to change how their educational system works. You're going to have to change how their military emphasis works without dismantling the military because right now the military in North Korea is pretty much the thing that fixes the roads, carries out, you know, handles the infrastructure, uh, that, you know, that kind of thing. It's not like they have a whole bunch of, uh, as I understand it, construction crews and city crews and things like that. It's a very different world in North Korea than it is here. And they are not up to taking care of all of this stuff. So, especially with so much of their education being so much heavy, heavy indoctrination. So, again, this isn't a light switch, flip it, and everything's great kind of situation. And if they were to open up the doors like Russia did in the early 90s, and the Western nations just flooded in there, screw China as a trading partner, we'll be your trading partner, we'll bring you everything you need. Well, we know what happens very, very, very quickly when you have Western nations and Western ideals you know, crash into um, this situation. These people are not ready for it. They don't want it. And it, it would be resisted. But even if it was welcomed with open arms, you're still talking about years and years of changing over an economy and getting this economy, this country, on its own feet and able to, um, and into a position of actual viability. Uh, this, this is still, this is not an easy task on any metric. But let's say that you got everything going in that direction. Well, how do you avoid Western exploitation of this population? I don't know. 
because that's a whole nother level of problem that comes into this picture, just like it did in Russia. And what happened in Russia is I, in, in, in a reductionist nutshell idea that I have or, or view that I have of it is, you know, Western nations came uh, flying in there, capitalists came flying in there, and, um, and the mafia and criminal elements of the Russian society quickly... Uh, those that had centralized control of or or uh, ownership of, you know, the stuff that mattered, the stuff that was valuable, uh, quickly became very, very rich and everybody else suffered. Uh, and I don't know that North Korea would be a whole lot different from that if, if that Western thing started flying in there. And there was a kickback resistance to it, and that's how we get... You know, people like Putin and stuff like that. Again, not an expert on all the international history and, and relations and economics of all of this. This is really just thumbnail looking at some of these things. But I've, in order to answer the question realistically, I have to address these things. Um, so deprogramming the country means, um, you know, what, burning all the books? Are we going to be Nazis now? And we're going to now go in and say, well, well Kim Jong-un wrote this and therefore... Onto the onto the fire with it. That's what happened in the denazification of the of the Germans, is the Western nations became another version of the Germans, and they were literally doing book burnings and things like that. I mean, it was it, you know getting rid of banning material. You couldn't be speaking hostily about the occupation forces or the changeover. You know there was it, 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 there's no way to avoid this kind of heavy oppressive environment when you're dealing with. Um, de-oppressing an area. It's, I mean, whose values do you want? How do you want to introduce this? How do you trust these people? Because they've been indoctrinated for years to not trust you. Uh, you know, so so what's the reaction going to be? Are they going to want your goods and services, uh, Western nations? Or are they going to want you guys to stay the hell out? And if they do, are you going to respect that? And you're going to leave it to them. And if we leave it to them, what are they going to do? Well... Depends on who takes charge, doesn't it? Because the Kim family could disappear, but then who comes up instead? A David Miscavige or Justin Trudeau, <laughs> right? Like, which one do we get? <laughs> Odds are, out of that country and the people who are in power over there, you're going to get a David Miscavige. And we know what happens when those kind of people take over. Uh, you go from one, you know, bad to another. So I'm not saying it's all hopeless or anything, but I am saying in the course of events in history, as we look at, you know, population control and population and freeing populations, we see that this is no walk in the park, and it's no, then there are no easy answers to these questions. And that's kind of, so I thought I'd kind of deal with it realistically rather than go, oh, well, you know, propaganda, education, that's the way that you go about changing hearts and minds. And if we just got the right messaging on all the right billboards and changed all the books and changed all the teachers and changed all the cultural attitudes and we somehow did that overnight, you know, go ask Afghanistan about how well and how uh, successfully we know how to do that. You know, we didn't. We didn't do that at all. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's kind of on us. That's on them. There's, you know, the clash of cultures and the clash of values, morality, emotional needs, all that stuff I talk about. This is, there are no easy answers to this. So, um, so I think I've made my point, and there's my not really much of an answer, I guess, but there's my response to your question. And please feel free to ask me anything more about that. I'm happy to dive into more details about this. It's hard. It's hard. Uh, so there you go. Michael Yoder, in a lecture on The Descent of Man, 1955, LRH was talking about communication and used several terms I haven't heard. He said that stopping communication acquires mass. He mentioned thereness several times, communicatingness, and start, stop, and change. Oh, Lord of all things minutia, besides word salad and nonsense, what are the meanings of these? I ask humbly in Hubbard's name, amen. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. All right, now this one you actually gave me the context for, and I appreciate that because I went and pulled the lecture. And um, I'm just going to read to you from the scriptures uh, to give you the context of this first thing you asked about in, in terms of acquiring mass uh, on with communicate. You stop communicating, you acquire mass on the subject. Here's the full quote from this. Hubbard said, now there, uh, he's talking here about the ARC triangle, affinity, 
reality, and communication. This is the key triangle in Scientology. These three things are supposed to sum up or total into understanding. So if you want to understand something, you simply have to have affinity for it, have some degree of reality, perception, agreement with it, and be able to communicate uh, with it or uh, about it or around it, you know. And by doing these three things, you will have some degree of understanding of a thing. This is the theory in Scientology. So ARC, Affinity, Reality, and Communication, a great deal to be learned from that, Hubbard says. If a person knew all the factors involved in affinity, reality, and communication, he could probably communicate with anything. Now, there are several little maxims that jump up concerning this. One of the most notable is, when in doubt, communicate. Apparently, we're always better to communicate than not to communicate. Because when you stop communicating, you acquire mass on the subject. But if you want to acquire mass, stop communicating. Do you see this? You stand up to a man and you've been discussing things with him and he's rather a violent sort of a man. And you all of a sudden say, I refuse to talk to you anymore. And then just shut up. The next thing you know, you're going to get some mass a more violent representation. And I think what Hubbard is inferring there is you're going to get hit in the face, right? Which is the mass of a fist right at you. But there's an underlying principle here, uh, Michael, which is that communication is the universal solvent. It dissolves all things. With communication, you can, um, I've explained before in the distant past, this thing in Scientology called as-ising something. You as-is a thing, which means you perceive it uh, in fo- you create a full duplicate of it in the same time and space in which a thing exists. In other words, if I could take this device, this stream deck sitting right in front of me here, and I could create with my Phaeton a, uh, a complete duplicate of this piece of matter, energy, space, and time that is sitting here in front of me, I would, and, and put it in exactly the same place, it, you can't have two things occupy the same space at the same time, and it would, as is, it would disappear, it would go away. And that is, that is sort of considered to be the ultimate in communicating with the thing, because you would be creating a perfect duplicate of it and putting it there in that same space and time. And that's how you get rid of things. This is how you erase trauma in auditing, is you create a duplicate of the charge connected with the trauma by mocking up or creating a duplicate picture of that trauma. That's what auditing is all based on, is that you are, through the process of your regression therapy, you're, you're, you're remembering things, you're recalling things, what you're actually doing is duplicating the exact time, place, form, and event of the incident in the here and now, and thereby erasing the charge. So if you want to... Um, acquire mass, stop communicating. Don't communicate. Just shut it down. Keep it. Keep the thing away from you. Don't as is it ever, ever, ever. Because it's through communication, affinity, reality, and communication with the thing that you would be destroying mass. So by not communicating with the thing, by shutting it, by keeping it away from you, you, you prevent any ability to get rid of that problem. Do you see the immediate consequence or implication here for the fact that Scientology shuns critics and suppressive people like me? We are, by, by their own theory, by their own foundational philosophy, they ensure that by not communicating with us and not dealing with our issues and problems, they make the problem persist forever. I hope all that kind of makes sense in a weird, bizarre Scientology kind of way. Uh, because all I'm trying to point out here is even according to Scientology's own solutions, L. Ron Hubbard completely breaks them and violates them by creating a disconnection and shunning policy. He says one thing and he does something different. And that's why I wanted to point this out. When in doubt, communicate unless you're dealing with a suppressive person. And then never communicate with them and be sure you're always going to have that problem. I mean, Hubbard didn't even listen to himself when he wrote his own policies. 
You also mentioned thereness and communicatingness. Now, L. Ron Hubbard made a real thing out of adding N-E-S-S, ness, as a suffix, two words in order to make nouns out of them that he could talk about as nouns. It was just a way he liked to talk and think about certain concepts. And here's the context for this. This is later on in that same Descent of Man lecture. Now, the one, there are two crimes in this universe, and all crime stems from these two things, to be there and to communicate. Okay, this is sort of a, not a joke, but it's sort of always told in a sort of a, yeah, there's two crimes in this universe. There's two things you do that are not really crimes. You know, he's being a little ironic. But he's saying these are the things you're always going to get in trouble for. These are the things that people are going to hate you for. These are the things you're going to end up in in trouble for is being there, just you exist, and communicating. Okay? And ha-ha, isn't that funny? Because how can you do anything else but be there and communicate as a Thetan or as a person? You, You can't. He says those are the two crimes of this universe, thereness and communicatingness. If you have any doubts whatsoever about the criminality of communicating, you should realize that the law is powerless to act in the absence of a statement by the criminal. It can only punish if an utterance is made. Well, no, that's not true at all. You have the right to remain silent, but they will definitely punish your ass if they have evidence against you, regardless of whether you communicate or not. This is the kind of curvy bullshit that Hubbard would always sort of throw into his lectures and go, aha, see, I was so clever there. Yeah, if they only punish you if you make an utterance, you know. No, they don't. That's not how that works at all. But Scientologists hear that and go, oh, that's so clever. So anyway, when it comes to thereness and communicatingness, Hubbard is talking about the state or quality of being there and communicating. And uh, that's really all that is wrapped up in that uh, particular uh, lecture there. And then you also mentioned, finally, start, stop, and change. Now, this is a very common three... Uh, word description of control. In Scientology, if you have the ability to start, change, and or stop a thing, you're able to control it. Uh, So, right, I mean, you know, if I can start, change, and stop this deck of cards here, I control it. Pretty simple definition, uh, pretty simple concept, and that's what that means in uh, almost every lecture where Hubbard brings that up. So, There's the answer to your minutia for this week, Michael. Lauren Gray. Growing up, the only concept of past lives I was ever exposed to was that of reincarnation, such as in the Eastern religions, where it is an incentive to be good in this life so that your next one is better. However, I'm noticing that high control groups seem to be using the idea of past lives pretty frequently, both with and without members laying claims to famous names. I was Cleopatra and also Joan of Arc. This, uh, to me, is very curious and interesting. Could you talk about why this is and what functions past lives serve for cults and high-control groups, Scientology and otherwise? Also, does it take a lot of effort to convince people they have had past lives? All right, Lauren, thank you for this question. Basically, what I'm going to say here is that it's really articles of faith are what bring a lot of power uh, to groups because there is no proof necessary. You simply have to believe, and by believing, you're supposed to be granted special powers or abilities or perceptions. And, um, And this, of course, is just nothing but pure imagination, but people will take ideas that they can't prove, that they want to be true, again, because it fulfills emotional needs, aligns with their moral foundations, and makes sense to them in some fashion, and past lives make sense to a lot of people. Uh, it's, easy, it's an easy sell for people because uh, it, it stems from the fact that people don't want to die, and wouldn't it be great, and this is certainly me speaking in my own experience in Scientology, wouldn't it be great if you knew you didn't? And you could just claim that as a certainty. You just knew. I've lived before, and therefore I will live again, and therefore the loss of this body in my life and dying, in other words, isn't so tragic, isn't so horrible, isn't something to be so scared about, you know, because it's not like it's one and done. You don't, you know, it's not just one and done. You have a multiplicity of lives, and therefore your existence is assured. Then it really just becomes a quality, a question rather, of the quality of your existence. Are you going to be a rock or are you going to be some, you know, God? Well, Scientology is saying that you have this faith that that you can believe that you are an infinite, an infinitely aged, immortal spiritual entity, 
And isn't that wonderful? And and generally for people who don't think the thought through too much, it sounds wonderful, right? But you really start thinking about what it would mean to live forever, especially in a human existence or in a in bodily existence, organic existence. It would be awful. It would be horrible. I mean, there, there there's a certain point where you're kind of done. And everything you can experience, you've experienced. And everything you can do, you've done. You know, let's say, what does it take? 400 years? 500 years? I mean, how many things are there to do? How many books are there to read? How much life is there to be lived before you're really just repeating yourself over and over and over again? You're going to hit that point, whether it's 500 years, 1,000 years. Maybe you're incredibly creative and it's going to be 2,000 years. But there's going to be a point where there is nothing new for you. And at that point, life becomes a drudgery. Life becomes awful. And so I believe now, having really kind of gone through down a few rabbit holes uh, in that direction, in terms of study of philosophy and existentialism and existential psychology and stuff like that, I find this stuff fascinating. And dealing with my own recovery, of course, because how many come from this belief set of past lives are a thing, future lives are a thing, therefore my survival is assured. Well, I'm not so sure of any of that right now. I don't have any such beliefs anymore. And so the value of this life suddenly becomes amped up quite a bit, which speaks to one of the reasons why you can utilize things like past lives with members to advantage the leadership because you can get these folks to do things they they wouldn't normally do if they thought that dying wasn't a real big deal. This is, I mean, this is Heaven's Gate. They all committed suicide. That was tragic and awful. But not one of them thought that they were, that their existence was ending. They were absolutely convinced, and I mean this, they were absolutely convinced that by killing themselves, they were doing exactly the right thing to ensure that they were going to have a continuing existence with the aliens uh, behind, you know, Comet Hale-Bopp. And that's tragic, but in their minds, they were convinced otherwise. How do you get somebody to do that? Well, maybe convince them that they are immortal spiritual entities. Now, does Scientology, you know, have a a suicide squad? No, that's not their goal. But, you know, could they be pushed in directions where they will endanger themselves, put themselves in peril or harm's way in order to maintain the religion or protect David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard? You bet. You bet. There is power in that belief and in utilizing or exploiting that belief in followers. You can get them to do things that people who are afraid of dying would never do. Uh, and that's just one end of this. Of course, you know, there's also um, a lot of self-empowerment that is felt by members because of this fact. Because now they feel transcendent. They feel, you know, sort of uh, this binary thing where they are not their bodies. This becomes a shell. It becomes a set of clothes. It becomes something unimportant. Oh, bodies. Bodies are a dime a dozen. And by doing that, you immediately devalue all the things your body is telling you. When it's sick, when it doesn't feel well, when it needs rest, when it needs food, when it needs things, you can disregard it. It's just a body. You know, I'm cause over that. I'm, I'm separate from that that whole duality thing. So this gives, again, advantages to cult leaders in terms of how they can manipulate and exploit their followers. Uh, So that's a big reason why you'll see this kind of, this specific belief or something very like it being pushed is is because because of those advantages. So there you go. Renata F., I'm from the Czech Republic, and I watched many of your videos. It is very helpful, including the coercive control topic. It's healing, and thank you for that. I'm contacting you concerning the topic of repayment slash refund. There is not many information out there about it. It's clear that the other abuses in the Church of Scientology are of greater priority, especially those in the Sea Org and the psychological abuse, but the situation concerning repayments, quote-unquote, money on account, in Scientology is also energetically uneven. They are super active when they want money, but complete opposite when it comes to balance. Financial abuse might have similar or same impact on emotional health as other abuses. Never pay the Church of Scientology in advance. 
I will be happy if I can get any feedback from you on this topic and if this might be a topic to talk about in order to help people heal from this hidden abuse. Renata, you're nailing it. You're absolutely right. And this is not talked about a whole lot. We talk about refunds and getting refunds from the church. Tony Ortega has done a lot of reporting about this and the recent successes uh, Graham Barry has had in getting money out, extracted back from the Church of Scientology. But this has been classically incredibly difficult. They will not give you your money back unless you go in, go on an e-meter, jump through a bunch of hoops, you know, do what they want you to do. Now, over the years, that, like their old legal challenges to everybody and their mother who would ever, you know, say anything bad about them, that's kind of died off now. Same with the refunds is you can get refunds from the Church of Scientology now, but it's going to take an awful lot of work. Now, re repayments, I believe, is where you have paid for something and um, you've done the service and then you want your money back. It's not a refund. If, if I remember this right, refunds are for services you haven't done. Repayments would be where you did the service and you want the money back anyway because you're so bad. And they're generally not going to do repayments under any conditions of any kind. They're not, they don't feel any obligation or compulsion to, to do that. But, they, but if you've ta- put money on account, and every single Church of Scientology operates this way, where you are making what's called advance payments toward your next service, and you can actually accumulate money on account with the church. And of course, they're going to spend that money straight away, but if you want the money back, they're going to have to make it and give it back to you, because it's not like they keep it in their reserves. Here I'm talking about the local churches. If I went down to the Denver Church of Scientology, and I gave them $5,000, and then a month from now, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to actually do that auditing, or a year from now, hey, I, you know, I put all that money on account, but really, I'm not going to use it. Could I have it back? They're going to be like, no, of course you can't. Uh, and you're going to have to do that whole you know hoop jumping uh, process in order to get the money back. And if you get the money back, you're out. You're kicked out. You're never coming back. So of course there you know so no Scientologist who ever wants to remain a Scientologist is ever going to be able to get that money back. So the only solution you have in becoming a Scientologist to not having that problem of money on account and you want it back is don't put it on account in the first place. And yeah, this is a very legit uh, warning to give to people. So thank you for bringing this up. Uh, let's see. Uh, some people, by the way, have accumulated tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on account with the church. And that money is then um, sometimes able to be transferred around from church to church. But remember, each individual Church of Scientology is its own corporate entity. And if they are going to transfer money from one place to another, they call it a paper transfer because no money actually transfers. So if you pay, um, you know, Denver $10,000 and then you want to go over and then you move to New York and you want to transfer that money over to New York, New York is under no obligation whatsoever to accept a transfer. And they often won't. Because because Denver is not actually transferring $10,000 to New York. They're transferring a piece of paper that says $10,000, you know. And now New York is supposed to deliver $10,000 worth of service for nothing. They've collected not a penny from you. And they won't generally do that. If they're going to accept a transfer, they usually want you to pay something uh, in order to uh, execute that transfer. They're all, well, maybe we'll transfer some of that money over here. But you got to pay us, too. You know, and that's and and you can kind of see it from the organization's point of view, but you also see, wait a minute, I thought this was all Scientology. Isn't this some kind of monolithic Scientology unit or organization? And they're like, yeah, no, it's not. And uh, sometimes when you go up to a higher level organization, you can transfer that money. Uh, they'll accept a paper transfer, but again, only after you've put some money down, uh, some new fresh green coming in for them. Otherwise, they don't really necessarily feel compelled to accept those transfers. They're like, yeah, no, we're not going to take that money. So basically, it all works in their favor, right, uh, if they want it to. Uh, and, and very, very rarely does it work in your favor. So uh, that's, that's transfers in Scientology. John Michael Hewson. 
As someone who works in litigation, I'm almost ashamed at how the art, quote-unquote, of examining a witness is not about revealing or approaching truth, but more about the witchcraft and cruel game theory of making people appear untrustworthy or casting the shade of doubt on testimony through rhetorical tricks. While it's important to carefully examine witnesses and sometimes to confront them with unpleasant facts, I think all that can be done without the theatrics and rhetoric that are not designed to engage our critical thinking, but rather literally to disable it. When we look more broadly at sales and marketing, not to mention politics, I wonder if it makes sense for you as a former cult member to consider the extent to which mainstream culture is an environment openly hostile to critical thinking. Doesn't it appear as though a cult-like environment is infecting our broader culture and that just living in society presents us the same challenges to liberate ourselves from the confines of a situation that is constantly operating against our ability to be autonomous and reasonable? As someone who has emerged from a true cult, you sometimes find yourself going through the same process all over again in civilian life. I realize that on a micro level, we have extraordinary freedoms. But on a broader political and cultural level, I think sensible people and sensible thinking are very marginalized. I'm very curious to know your perspective on this in light of your experience as a former Scientologist. Well, John, thank you very much for this question. It's a great one and one that I have spent years of teeth gnashing frustration over experiencing. You're absolutely right. There are all kinds of coercive and manipulative and propaganda-like activities that go on in our culture and society that don't have to come from cult leaders or charismatic centralized authorities in order to be very irritating, annoying, bothersome, and even controlling. Uh, you know, we've got all kinds of levels and factors in our society to deal with and contend with that are not doesn't seem really to be stacked in our favor. And this is uh, a constant problem. And we have uh, certain factors in our society, certain systems, our political system and the machinery that, that exists within the political system, the, the left machinery, the right machinery, or you know, the Democratic National Committee, the Republican, you know, the GOP, and these, and these sort of like mechanisms that are, that are built at the city, state, county, federal level that we are constantly fighting and why are you know and what is that all about well it's supposed to be about legislation and regulation and control of society so that people can live their lives according to our constitution that's what it's supposed to be about but every level is always trying the thing about human beings whether it's whether it's uh in the government whether it's a church structure a religious structure whether it's a corporate structure where, where, where we have to go to work um, and those things are supposed to be producing products for society or offering services for society so that there's exchange and that does occur. But when resources are centralized in government, religious or corporate structures and they don't distribute that wealth or don't distribute those resources equitably or fairly, we have the inequities that we have. And this really comes down to human greed and human nature. Greed, nature, you know, these are all kind of stuck together. And our ego and our emotional needs of me, 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 now, 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 I need my thing before you're going to get yours. This is something that dwells, this little evil imp that dwells within all of us. And it makes us act very selfish and very even cruel toward other people. And we, and then when we get into groups of people doing this to one another, all of the same cultic phenomena emerges. Us versus them, right? They're the bad guys, we're the good guys. Whether it's sports or whether it's, again, corporate or whether it's religious, right? The Baptists, oh, we're the best Baptists and everybody else has no idea what they're talking about. And it just takes a little bit of push to dial that up to 11. And suddenly we're in extreme land where violence starts becoming justified against people who aren't us. Or other unfair measures can be enacted because they're bad and we're good. This is just common human behavior, and this is what emerges out of cult studies is you realize, oh my God, everybody does this crap. And it doesn't necessarily always have to revolve around a central leader telling us to do this crap in order for this stuff to come out. And so when I try talking about this, and the first time that I really, really made a dedicated effort to try to push out 
on, hey, look, here's some cultic behavior that I see occurring. Here's some potential cultic behavior I see occurring with Donald Trump in 2016. Right, this happened. This this election happened, and the the lead up to that election, the whole election cycle, and I watched this happen, and I went, you know, this guy looks an awful lot and sounds an awful lot like L. Ron Hubbard, and I knew I was bumping up against a great deal of resistance because it's not like Hillary Clinton was an awesome alternative. I didn't want her. I didn't want to have to vote for her, um, but. I was more alarmed by the just boorish behavior, just adding the, the, the cruelty and the lies that came out of Donald Trump's mouth. And to see people rally around that was very, very hard to understand at the time. Since in all the years since then, uh, there's been an awful lot of things that have helped clarify what the hell was going on there. And it wasn't all just about racism and sexism. It was an awful lot about not trusting the Clintons and the establishment, um, both GOP and liberal establishments. And I get all that, right? This is no political rant of Trump bad and everybody else good. I'm trying to point out that I was looking at something that looked an awful lot like Scientology to me. It sounded an awful lot like Scientology to me. And I said, this is dangerous. This is not right. We don't want this. Trust me, guys, this is going to be bad. And everybody went, stay in your lane. Shut the fuck up. You don't have any right to talk about politics. You're the cult guy. Just keep it to Scientology. That's all I'm here for. I don't need your political rhetoric. And look what happened, right? This country has devolved into absolute utter chaos as a result of this one dude and the machine that existed around him. It's not all just on one guy. It never is, especially when you're talking about something like a president, presidential race, presidential, you know, holding the office. It's not, it's, there's a lot of levels. Again, it's a team activity. But as led by this guy who had no clue what he was doing, no desire to do the job well, and was really just, you know, grifting like he always has through his entire life. That's who Elron, that's who David, or sorry, Donald Trump is. He's a grifter criminal, and I'm sorry if that offends people. I, I really, I, I don't, I, I can't think of a more common sense, obvious thing to say. But I got a lot of crap for that. I got so much crap for that. And if right now your blood is boiling, you're, you're in the wrong place, man. You're not here to learn about cults because I'm talking about cultic behavior. And if you can't deal with some criticism of your political leader, there's something culty about that. Because none of us should be that invested in our politicians. None of us should be. Left or right, center, none of it. Right? These are legislators. These are political leaders. They are not our friends. And I try to talk about this, and I can't believe how much pushback I get and how unpopular this is. But this is, and this is where I really started learning just how culty our society can be outside of the cult. It's the usual cult stuff, you know, the Scientology stuff, the Jehovah's Witnesses stuff. It's like, oh, we can talk about how crazy those guys are because I don't believe in any of the stuff they believe in. But if you start talking about what I believe in, how dare you, right? And I get a face full of cult behavior. And I just find that absolutely fascinating and terrifying and a little sad because the whole message of my channel is don't invest in anybody, man. There are no gurus out there. There are no political leaders that give a shit about you. They never have. That's not what this system is about. And we get played, all of us, all of us voters, all us regular folks, right? And here I am talking ideology. I could easily be talking about this in the confines of organized religion. Because not every religion is a cult. Not by a long shot. But there's an awful lot of people out there who think they are, right? Every religion, all religion, it's all a cult. No, but there's culty behavior because they're groups. They're groups of human beings, and human beings can't help themselves when they get into groups. They get into cliques. They get they form hierarchies. I want to be. I want to move up the ladder. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be forced down the ladder. All the power plays and nonsense we get into. We can't help ourselves. We're human beings. This is what we do. And. Uh, you know, conflict is what drives us and trying to predict the future and trying to survive and trying to move forward is what we're all trying to do. But we're, you know, we're endlessly uh, error ridden 
in our calculations and predictions and ideas of things. And we just can't take responsibility for our own errors. We have to blame somebody else. It's always somebody else holding us down, oppressing us, the systems of oppression we live in. Now I'm going to piss off all the left people, right? Because, yeah, we do have oppressive systems in certain contexts, in certain places, and, and under certain circumstances. But our systems in the West are the best systems that exist in the world, you know, to, uh, to put forward personal initiative and freedom and recognition of human rights and the responsibilities that, are, that come with those rights, you know, and we all fall down in all different places in regards to all this. There's not one of us who has a perfect view of any of this, and some of us have a very, very cultic lens that we are looking through where it's all about us versus them, and it's all about how we're the good guys and they're all the bad guys. And again, we can't help ourselves. This is the, just, just human nature. So this is uh, one of the things that I have struggled with for many, many years is really just trying to come to an understanding of this and then realizing I'm just as susceptible as everybody else to this. I come out of Scientology and I am determined not to fall for another cult. And then I go a little too far down the left rabbit hole and I see, you know, I'm trying to think about human rights and helping people and realizing personal freedoms and and a, and a progressive sort of lifestyle where we can all kind of get along better and maybe treat each other okay. And you find out you keep going down that rabbit hole and it goes to some dark places and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Got to pull back from that. And then you start going over toward the right and you're like, well, no, these, you know, this, this isn't what I'm talking about. And, and so I end up kind of in the middle and then I realize, no, no, I need to come out of this whole thing, right? I need to not be part of any of this. And, uh, and so, you know, ideologically, religiously, uh, sports wise, you know, whatever category or spectrum you want to put up, you know, I'm just, not, I'm just, I, I realize getting too invested in any of this is the trap. That's how we fall into this problem is we over-invest ourselves. We over-identify with our groups. You know, it's our way or the highway. And we fail to see the value in negotiation and compromise because that takes an awful lot of frontal lobe work. And as I've gone over many, many times now and will continue to go over because I, I think it's fascinating, it's our emotional needs and our moral needs and foundations that are driving our behavior, not our frontal lobes. And that's, that's a problem. That's a real big problem. And it creates all this kind of culty behavior all through our society at every level. Haven't even talked about the socioeconomic issues, but again, same, same, right? Different levels of socioeconomic status, different needs, different morals, different values. And that's what drives the behavior. So, um, so yeah, this is something I've been dealing with for a very long time. And, uh, and as you mentioned in the question here, we build this into our structures. And so we have a court system that, as you mentioned, is more interested in rhetorical tricks than critical thinking and the truth. Because it's our side has to win at, through any means possible. And, and it's not about finding truth. It's about uh, resolving criminal charges and staying out of trouble or getting into trouble. And, and then it's about incarceration, which is not about rehabilitation. It's about punishment. That's how our entire re, you know, uh, penal system has been built, is on penalizing, not rehabilitating. And uh, that you know, is going to result in what it results in, especially in the United States where we are slap happy about throwing people in prison. Uh, it, we're, we're crazy on the topic, right? We've lost all perspective on how human beings actually are kind of a product of their environment very much. And if you are not, you know, if you're born in an area that doesn't have, uh, that's that rather that's had all the opportunities sucked out of it, you know, good luck getting out of that. Some people can, but to pretend that that's in the, a level playing field with people who are born with silver spoons in their mouths or even middle-class people who had, do have some opportunity in their lives used to at least, now that differences are becoming so great that the cultic behavior, the anxiety levels come up and the extreme thinking is that much easier to engage in. The more we see these gaps in socioeconomic status in history, the more these stressors become more and more predominant in society. And that's the only thing that really worries me at this point is, you know, can we overcome those stressors and, and bring the temperature down 
Well, not as long as we keep separating out the socioeconomic statuses and the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer and there's more and more and more poor being made. These are drivers of cultic behavior, of extreme belief, right? So uh, that's why I talk about all this stuff. And I, this is just my perspective, but this is this you asked me, and so this is what I kind of think about all of this. Uh, it's there's no easy solutions here. All I can think to do with myself and my position here is do my best to try to educate and inform, you know, and and of course get along in my own life by being kind of mildly entertaining at the same time, right? And, and tell you guys things and try to do it in a way that is interesting, uh, so that the lessons can be can be learned and hopefully applied. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Robert Tobias. In the unlikely event that the Church of Scientology is actually held accountable for their alleged illegal activity, how many Sea Org members do you think will drop their bodies, quote-unquote, unalive themselves, as other zealous cult groups who believe in reincarnation have done in the past? Okay, Robert, thank you for this. I don't think there would be a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I could see maybe Miscavige pulling something like that. But otherwise, I don't really see any kind of like mass death problem in Scientology with this. They don't really think that way. That's not really, you know, I, I answered earlier about, you know, some of the ways that, that past life belief can be exploited. And yet in Scientology, I have a hard time seeing it being pushed in that direction. So I don't think very many. PM. If the Sea Orgs were an alien race in a Star Trek movie, would they then be called the Sea Borgs? Yeah, <laughs> you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Jonathan Perry, how did Tom Cruise get into Scientology? As far as I know, it was through his first wife, Mimi Rogers, uh, introducing him and also him learning about applied scholastics and the study and the reading. Something about that really appealed to him because he had grown up with a dyslexia um diagnosis and he had a hard time reading and scientology and clearing up words and stuff that's what he said uh as far as one of the things that really appealed to him about uh about scientology and of course whatever auditing he was receiving at the time when he first got in so i think this was in the early mid 1980s all right that is our show for this week i hope you found the answers informative educational and entertaining thanks for coming around please consider supporting the show through patreon paypal venmo uh, you know all the links listed below and if you need any assistance consult a consultation i am available for professional consultation uh at an hourly rate to help you either uh overcome the uh history of coercive control in your life or deal with a coercive situation uh, that you might be experiencing right now or help you help your friends or family who might be in a cult or coercive situation. I can help with that. So you can contact me uh, via this channel and uh, or via the askchrisshelton at gmail.com and we can connect on that. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.